This morning it's the St. Michael Singers with Jesus, the name high over all. Continuing our series on John Wesley and Methodism, Melvin Bragg talked to three experts on the history of Methodism, Aaron White, Stephen Plant and William Gibson. Today they look at John Wesley's visit to America and also the importance of the conversion experience. Let's get back to, to, to Wesley. He, he, as we've been told, he came back to Oxford became part of the Holy Club, and then he, he went, soon after that he went to Georgia. What was that all about, William? 
Well, in 1735, he went on a missionary preaching tour to Georgia. Um, and Georgia was a, a quite a seminal experience for him because he met uh, Moravian brothers on the ship going over to America. And he was extremely impressed by their piety and uh, the earnestness, as Stephen calls it, of their religion. Uh, they Who took religion they? very seriously. They, they were European Protestants um, who were really fleeing from uh, Catholic persecution. Um, and on the ship, he was very impressed by their hymn singing and their, their pietist uh, beliefs. Um, and that was a very important moment. The second thing that's important about his experience in Georgia is he experimented with non-juring liturgies. So although he used the Book of Common Prayer, he also introduced these non-juring uh, liturgies that Stevens talked about uh, emerging from William Law. Um, and this, again, links back to the idea of primitivity. He's trying to get back to the way in which the early church worshipped. Um, and the third reason why Georgia was so important was because he left it really as a fugitive from justice. He uh, had a relationship with a woman called Sophie Hopke. Uh, they, he thought that they were engaged, but he uh, delayed setting a date for their marriage. And eventually Sophie Hopke became disenchanted and married somebody else. And John Wesley regarded this as a breach of their arrangement, um, and he refused to admit her to Holy Communion. And Sophie Hopke's husband then prosecuted John Wesley for defaming his wife. And while he was on bail, uh, Wesley returned to, to England and never answered the charges. When he was gathering uh, people around him uh, to listen to him talk in the open air, wherever it was, what made it stand apart from what others were offering at that time? A general, a general revivalism was growing up here and in America. Just to take those two countries. Um, what, what stood out about him and what he was saying? Well, I certainly think that once he'd returned to England, one of the key ingredients that made Wesley so attractive as a, as a preacher and as a revivalist was a message of conversion and assurance of salvation. Um, in 1738, Wesley experienced uh, a conversion. He reinterpreted this through his life, uh, but at the time he saw it as an instantaneous moment. He uh, famously went to a, a Moravian meeting in London, and as he was listening to uh, Luther's preface to St Paul, he said he felt his heart strangely warmed, and he suddenly knew that he'd been saved. Now, his brother had experienced this three days before, uh, and this is a very compelling experience that he uh, promoted and he ensured was a centrepiece of Methodism. He made sure that uh, people gave testimony of their conversion, both orally and in writing. And we've already mentioned hymn singing, of course, which was an important part of Wesley's uh, activities. In, in fact, early Methodism was... Uh, particularly dependent on the sale of hymn books financially. Um, so John and Charles Wesley were very keen to keep uh, hymn singing going. Um, and the third big ingredient of, of Wesley's mission was, of course, preaching. He didn't quite have the dramatic flair of George Whitfield, uh, but he certainly, uh, in, in, people enjoyed hearing him preach. He preached with vigour uh, and energy. Um, and to the 21st century mind, the 18th century thirst and delight in sermons seems a bit odd, but certainly at the time people flocked to hear John Leslie preach because he was uh, such an impressive preacher. 
Stephen Plant, what were, what were Wesley's followers to do to progress their faith? What, what about, how does Calvinism figure in this and Arminianism? He didn't think that Methodists believed anything differently to anybody else in the Anglican Church. He didn't think that Methodists uh, were distinguished by any particular activities or costume or vocabulary or any of those kinds of things. He thought that, as he puts it in 1742 in a, uh, a summary of what it meant to be Methodist, his simple summary of what it meant was that a Methodist is one who has the love of God shed abroad in his heart by the Holy Ghost. In other words, it's going back to William Law, it's this complete wholehearted love for others. It's not a particular doctrine, it's not a particular way of looking at the world, except that it's in earnest. It means regular prayer, regular rejoicing, uh, expunging from your life anger and envy and malice and offering service to others. And the way in which you did that was partly a social way. Um, Wesley liked to say sometimes that there was no way to holiness except social holiness. And by that he meant that individual Christians needed the support of other Christians to whom they were accountable. And this was facilitated in the early Methodist movement by things like uh, what were called class meetings, which were essentially small groups of people, five or six, up to 11 maybe, with a class leader who met with members of his or her class uh, on a regular basis to find out how they were doing. They met regularly about once a month uh, in chapel for uh, love feasts at which testimonies were given. They were encouraged to have regular communion in the local parish church. There were the hymns that we've already heard of, and there was regular preaching. So there was a series of things which the Wesleys thought supported a kind of internal change and that internal change was what Wesley sometimes liked to call growth in holiness or sanctification, which meant the making real in your life of the grace of God. Thank you. Aaron, um, what was it about personal experience that became so important for Methodists? And what, can you give us some examples of what kind of experience? Well, yes, this, I mean, this is building really on what William said about the importance of conversion for Wesley. And that was mirrored in a lot of other experiences because the conversion narrative became an essential element, really. Um, and people would recount their own experiences of this. And actually, a lot of these accounts were then published and broadcast because there was a sort of communication network which grew up between the different um, parts of the revival. So there would be letter writing and there was uh, there were also magazines which would publish these kind of accounts of experiences and conversions. So you kind of had a sense of what was expected almost, what the kind of standard was in terms of conversions. So there are accounts of people um, saying, you know, that they'd had a, an initial desires and they were searching for conversion and then sometimes in something like a church service during a preaching meeting or even when reading a book we have accounts of some people reading John Bunyan and suddenly feeling that as they said the burden of sin had been lifted and that was something that they would remember for the rest of their lives but then as Stephen was saying about then being um, that constant reiteration of this and this earnestness about it had to continue thereafter so the conversion experience itself was the beginning and from then on you had to continually monitor your progress and for some people it was actually too introspective and we do see people dropping out that were unable to maintain that sort of level of commitment thank you melvin bragg with erin white steve stephen plant and william gibson next sunday is palm sunday 
Uh, but in normal times, many churches would be today be thinking about the crucifixion. And some churches, the choir would sing this next piece. It's from Stainer's Crucifixion. Here's the Coventry Chorale with God So Loved the World. Geit has written a series of meditations based on the Psalms. Today we hear Malcolm's thoughts on Psalm number 9. It's followed by a piece of piano music by Ramo. Confitebo Tibi, 
a response to Psalm 9. As in the startling wisdom of a child, so also in remembering the poor, our scales are readjusted, reconciled to the true calibrations that endure when God in all his justice holds those scales, redresses our imbalance, and his sure and steadfast covenant at last prevails. And even now I will rejoice in him, Now when it sometimes seems that goodness fails, my song will still delight in his good name. So come and join the song, daughters of Albion. Come and rejoice with all whom he calls home. Rejoice through every age and stage and eon as patiently abiding with the meek. We sing with all the daughters of true Zion. to music now and it's a song for the weeks leading up to Easter the Easter Valley Chorale with the power of the cross
Adrian Plass has written a book called The Unlocking, published by the Bible Reading Fellowship. They have given us permission to broadcast his recordings, and we hear one of them now. The Unacceptable Alternative The kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? Jesus asked. Do you believe there is a place called hell? Does the idea of hell frighten you? Does it frighten you more or less than oblivion? Whatever your answers to these questions might be, it's very hard to ignore the passionate urgency with which Jesus set about saving us from it. In fact, if hell is an illusion, it's difficult to see the point of Jesus coming at all. Why preach the gospel? Why warn people? Why talk about salvation? The debate about whether an all-loving, all-powerful God could possibly consign anybody to everlasting separation is all very well, but the fact is that Jesus came to show us how to avoid such a dismal end, whatever that end is. Shall we ignore him? Of course not, but the parable of the prodigal son comes from the same source, and far more people are drawn to God by the power of love than were ever driven to him by the fear of hell. God loved the world with such a passion that he became astonishingly vulnerable so that we could be saved, a baby at the mercy of the world. How can we understand hell? I don't think I understand it at all, but when I reach into the darkness of this incomprehension, I find that my fingers touch something. When I was small and confused, I sometimes perversely created my own little hell, one winter night, after my two brothers and I had gone to bed, my mother called up the stairs to say that a very interesting nature programme was on the television and that we could all get up and come down to watch it. My two brothers wrapped themselves in blankets and stumbled happily down the stairs to enjoy this unexpected treat, cosy by the fire. So why did I refuse to go down to this place that was bright and friendly and nice? Why did I stay in my bed in the dark, weeping copiously, because I wasn't in the place where I wanted to be? I could have been there. I'd been invited to go there. I had only to leave my bed and take a few steps, and I would be there. Why? Maybe I'll sort it out one day. But for now, I offer you this story simply as a small image of hell. Another, even more loving parent calls and calls and calls in the night for his children to be with him in a good place. But countless numbers of them do not choose to come and, to his great sorrow, confine themselves to limitless darkness where they can be heard weeping and gnashing their teeth. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, some people are trying to say that there can't be a hell because God loves us too much ever to put anyone there. I've travelled that road myself in the past. Lord, I'm so sorry we have discounted your life and death in this way. The truth is your Father loved us so much that he created a means by which everyone can be saved from hell. Your passion is not wasted. 
If you had to die to rescue me from whatever hell is, then I don't want to go there, and it frightens me. We hear you calling, Father. Heal those who can't respond. Show us how we can communicate the urgency of your invitation without leaving out either the love or the danger. Amen. And there's more from Adrian Plass next week. A Celtic sound now, as Joanne Hogg sings Stuart Townend's adaptation of Psalm 23, The Lord's My Shepherd. The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. He makes me Larry and Judy Gentis live in Kirkmichael and belong to Pitlochry Baptist Church. 
Today, Judy imagines herself to be Eve, as described in Genesis chapter 1. If only I would, if, if I could say it over and over again, and it won't change the facts, we had it all and we lost it. But you only see it with hindsight, especially if you've lost something that you can never, ever get back. How things have changed. But let's back up. I'll tell you my story. My name is Eve, which means to give life. I'll never forget the very first moment of my life. It was as if I was in a daze and everything was quite blurry and slowly everything came into focus as I began to wake up. I sat up and looked around. The colours were amazing. Reds and greens and browns and blues and the smells. Oh, the smells were fragrant like freshly washed flowers. But now for the best part, I turned my gaze to the right and there was this beautiful being, a lot like me, but somehow different. And I knew we were meant to be together. He was called Adam. Life together initially was wonderful as we explored the garden and each other. Father God had given us everything that we could ever desire. It wasn't boring or tedious. We had the responsibility of tending the garden and giving all the plants and animals their names. Another thing, Father God, who created all things, loved spending time with us and we loved spending time with him. He allowed us to do things we saw fit and he never interfered, leaving us free to discover. He only gave us one command and it was this. From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. I didn't think anything more about it at the time because I reasoned Father God surely knows why he doesn't want us to eat his fruit. And anyway, what's good and evil? I didn't even know what it was. As I was walking along past that tree one day, I saw a snake. I didn't like him, but he was always there somewhere. And this time, it was as though he had something on his mind. Usually I tried to avoid him, but on this particular day, it was quite obvious he wanted a, a conversation. He began with a question. Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? He confused me with this question, but after thinking about it, I should never have replied, but I did. From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you may not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Then the serpent's reply really shocked me. <laughs> you shall surely not die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Looking back, that was the moment when I should have stopped the conversation. But at the time, I was intrigued. Did Father God really want to deprive me of something good? The fruit did look good and tasty, and he said it would make me wise. So I picked one and I ate it, even though I knew that Father God had forbidden it. Then I gave some to Adam, my husband, and he ate it as well. Then we started noticing things we'd never seen before. The first was that we were naked. I didn't know why, but suddenly I felt ashamed. 
We both were. I quickly sewed together some fig leaves to cover some parts of our bodies, even, even though I knew it wouldn't last very long. Soon after we'd eaten the fruit from the forbidden tree, Father God came into the garden as he normally did. This time, however, I was suddenly afraid because I knew I had been disobedient. So we hid as his voice rang out, calling to us three words I will never forget. Where are you? When he found us, my husband said, Well, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so, well, I hid myself. Then he blames me for it all. Well, you know, the woman you gave me to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. I thought he'd man up and help me, but that's another story. I only wish I hadn't listened to the horrible serpent. If I'd... If... If, 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 I guess the only ifs could go on and on and on. But the truth is, we've been turned out of our beautiful garden. We only have to reach out and pluck food from any number of plants and trees. But now we have to break the ground, plant things, and not all of them grow. Just the sight of a snake now makes me want to kill it straight away. In fact, we even kill and eat animals now. And we never did that before. Also... Now, when I get pregnant and have babies, it is so painful. The worst of it all is it's so hard to hear Father God's voice. In the garden, he talked with us often, and conversation was easy and free. That's the hardest part for me. Looking back on all this, it wasn't really so difficult to find out what what Father God wanted us. And if I had to do it over again... I would certainly never have listened to that snake because now I know what he really wanted. And you know what? He got it. But I know Father God. He has a plan to make everything right again. There will be another garden, one even better than the one we lost. So he's given us something really valuable which helps us to carry on living. It's called hope. His hope. That's my story. Do you have hope? This comes from Genesis chapter 3. Here's Elvis Presley with a song for today then. It's called, Who Am I? When I think of how he came so far from glory Came to dwell among the lowly such as I To suffer shame and such disgrace On Mount Calvary take my place Then I ask myself this question Why he ever 
Church of Scotland. Today she's got a story for us about a snowflake. Tell me the weight of a snowflake, a sparrow asked a wild dove. Nothing more than nothing was the answer. In that case, I must tell you a marvellous story, the sparrow said. I sat on the branch of a fir, close to its trunk, when it began to snow, not heavily. Not a raging blizzard. No, just like in a dream, without a sound and without any violence. Since I did not have anything better to do, I counted the snowflakes settling on the twigs and needles of my branch. Their number was exactly 3,741,952. And when the 3,741,953rd dropped onto the branch, nothing more than nothing, as you say, the branch broke off. And having said that, the sparrow flew away. Now, the dove, since Noah's time, was an authority on such things. And he thought about the story for a while and finally said to herself, perhaps there is only one person's voice or one person's action lacking for peace to come into the world. It may be that we are that person. And that thought came from Mary Haddo, who's Minister of Pitlochry Church of Scotland. But now we go to the African Children's Choir. We'll continue with that theme with Let There Be Peace on Earth and Let It Begin With Me. Let 
and we'll leave you with Isla Grant and Will You Walk With Me? Through the darkest night when my world goes wrong 